You're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and tax industry lead for U.S. international corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. So it's been a year since Destination Country X kicked off. Happy anniversary. And if you'll recall, our first episode was on Mexico's 2020 tax reform package. And although a lot has happened over the past year, particularly in Mexico, in many ways, we find ourselves in chapter two of the same book. We can see themes that were put on the table last year further crystallizing in this year's tax reform. Joining me to discuss are my co-host, Courtney Wallace, an international tax principal from our Detroit office, Armando Lara, partner in charge of international tax for KPMG Mexico, Jose Manuel Padilla, international tax partner from KPMG Mexico, and Juan David Mina, M&A tax partner also from KPMG Mexico. Armando, it's great to see you again and great to meet you, Jose Manuel and Juan David. Welcome to the podcast. So let's start with you, Armando. Can you give us an overview of the big highlights of Mexican tax reform that we really need to pay attention to as cross-border investors? Yes, happy to do it, Kim, and good afternoon, everyone. The government has decided to present a package in which we have seen that there are specific target measures that they want to raise more tax collections and to provide a new tax regime for individuals and small companies. The tax reform has a lot of components in order to target in certain type of transactions in order to remove certain tax effects, such as, for example, back-to-back loans. There is new definitions of back-to-back loans. There is a new definition in the way that we have to calculate in capitalization. The SOFON regime is proposed to be changed in relation to how the SOFON can grant certain specific benefits. And there is another thing that is new in the law that is the regime in the value-added tax section in relation how you calculate the VAT credit acts that are not taking place in the national territory. This will be the categories that we are in front of us, basically. And there will be a, another one that is compliance issues. That mm-hmm. is the report of auditors. This is something that is, I believe that it has been very relevant for in, in this part because the auditor now, if they don't report the tax obligations, the, the failure of the tax obligations from the company that is audited, this will constitute a crime for the auditor. And finally, the tax authorities have removed the possibility to apply the APA in order to comply the maquila tax obligations. Perhaps we can start with the financing or capital-related issues. I think you'd mentioned SOFOMS. Could you remind us as to what those arrangements currently look like? Yes. In general terms, the SOFOM is a financial institution that can be regulated or non-regulated, where there is some specific benefits that the SOFOM can apply. For example, when the SOFOM is paying interest to abroad, withholding tax automatically is 4.9%, regardless who is the recipient of the interest. The second thing that is very important to take in mind is that the SOFOM is exclude for the rules of thin capitalization. So it's not necessary that the SOFOM have to comply with the rule, the 3-1. And with that is the possibility to deduct more amount of interest. It's a very good opportunity for certain financial schemes. Yeah, you can put a lot of loans through this vehicle, this SOFOM, and then using this SOFOM that is now a Mexican entity that will lend the funds of the proceeds to the rest of the Mexican group. The think rules between Mexican parties are not applicable. 
So we can put as much debt as we wanted to the SOFOM, and then the SOFOM will lend these proceeds to the rest of the Mexican group. What is the definition of related party with respect to the SOFOM? Well, the related party is very similar to the one that we have for transfer pricing. And then if we consider that most of the SOFOMs that we're used for these purposes, intra-group transactions, then we will have the exposure in that regard. So does that mean that if we had a number of taxpayers get together and together form a non-bank bank, it would be possible to get the ownership structure down to the extent that the SOFOM is not a related party to any one of them? Always we need to think about it in the anti-abuse rule in general terms, the guard that we have in Mexico that says that any single transaction has to provide business reasons. And if you remember, Kim, in the 2020 reform, we have these rebuttable presumptions that the tax benefit has to be lower than the economic benefit that you are expecting. Or when you start to perform several acts in order to obtain a tax benefit and in comparison to go directly to the transaction, you generate more tax effect. This is a rebuttable presumption that we always have to test any single transaction in Mexico. Okay. So, Juan David, is there any way to rescue a pre-existing arrangement? Do we just have to take them all down? Is there any way to provide additional support so that they can continue to get the thin cap and withholding tax benefits? A very good question, Kim. In principle, that would be complicated. On the thin capitalization, I believe that we already have some exceptions, particularly focus on the infrastructure and energy distribution sectors. I will start by saying that. But in terms of saving the thin capitalization exposure to any other company, the alternatives or the possibilities to eliminate the thin capitalization exposure will be non-existent. It's very clear for purposes of the computation. So this is not something that you kind of interpret uh, the provisions or whatever, but this is exclusively measured on the debts you already have in place and the shareholders equity of the company, etc. Then is the challenge to otherwise just get them within the thin cap realm and potentially, I guess, you'd have to pay the withholding tax to the extent you're levered up anyway, right? got two things otherwise that you'd need to tackle with regard to these structures? Yes, this does not mean that the SOFOM, the structure where we have a SOFOM will be fully restructured or the SOFOM getting eliminated from the structure, etc. Of course, we can keep this SOFOM so long as the figures and the measurements and the thresholds are met from a thin capitalization perspective. And on the withholding tax rate, Of course, we still have the application of the tax treaty benefits. We should analyze if we restructure or not. And of course, the timing for the restructuring will be critical in this respect. So let me ask Armando, with respect to the effective date, are we talking about interest that is paid and accrued as of January the 1st? Yes, that's correct. So if there are companies that have deferred their interest payments, it would be best to pay up now, like prior to January the 1st. But is it possible to prepay interest prior to January the 1st? Definitely, you can do it if the contracts allowed to do that. So of course, there will be sometimes the tax authorities will say what was the reason in order to 
prepay the interest and we go directly to the GAR rule. What was the tax benefit in comparison with the economic benefit that you received for this prepayment? We can be subject to tax authority saying, well, the only reason was to obtain a tax benefit that was in place or was enforced in 2021. But I don't see that you have earned any money or you save any money for the prepayment of interest. So this is something that we need to see how we have to implement this prepayment of interest with certain discounts, etc. It's a matter to analyze this. Maybe available cash projections. Or exactly. Like that, exactly. How about change in U.S. tax rules, for example? <laughs> <laughs> Could I use change in law on the U.S. side to say if my U.S. rate is going up, maybe I want exactly. to do that now, yeah. right? Uh, definitely. Right. No, definitely. This is something that when you have an, a variable rate, of course, this is something that you can argue why we are making some specific prepayments. Definitely, yes. So there will be other conditions that increase your debt. There will be enough reasons in order to say that's why I am paying in advance. No. Yeah, it could be, of course. If we think about interposing this non-bank bank vehicle in the Mexican group, we may have a back-to-back. Absolutely. Nowadays, every financing structure we have seen here in Mexico, we deal with these back-to-back provisions. They are always in the loop when you are structuring the investments of non-residents here in Mexico. There is an article dealing with back-to-back provisions and limiting the artificial use of loans, etc. They have seen that this has not been sufficient to limit the abuse of these kind of transactions. And the bill is now considering to include a new back-to-back definition. What is very important to have in mind is that the tax law does not include a definition of what should be understood as business reason. So the bill is saying that any loan that lacks a valid business reason will be recharacterized as a dividend distribution or interest derived from that loan will be recharacterized as dividend. How closely factually related do these back-to-back transactions have to be to trigger these new rules? Do you have to show that they were deliberately within a series of transactions, so a singular arrangement? It seems that the tax authorities are focusing a lot in the economic substance principle that is not recognized at the level of the law here in Mexico. But there have been recent precedents by Mexican courts dealing with this because of the materiality behind the transactions that are conducted by the taxpayers. So yeah, I believe that what you mentioned would be a factor to be considered when structuring back-to-back loans because of course there should be a strong business case and the business reason behind the back-to-back loan for instance you have to prove the tax authorities why is there a back-to-back loan and there is not a direct loan to the operating company armando even if we prove that there's enough substance or non-tax business reasons to support a back-to-back loan we would still have to wrestle with the deduction disallowance rules from last year if ultimately in a back-to-back loan situation interest ended up getting paid into a relatively low tax environment yes definitely yes this is something that we need to analyze because if the recipient of those interests is subject to a low tax meaning this not tax at the level of 22.5 percent what we need to rely on in order to get the deduction will be the substance test where we probably we can have business reasons but what we need to have is employees and assets located in the recipient 
So as a guidance, we need to avoid a situation that the recipient can be treated as a cash box. So we need to have that the recipient has personnel to decide, to manage, to control all of the issues related with the loan. And of course, the important part is that has the assets in order to face delinquencies, bankruptcies, and uh, possibility to deny a business or not. I had thought too, if I remember correctly, that the deduction disallowance rules, they're not really a conduit theory. And so that if there's a payment on a transaction between party A and party B, and then there happens to be an on-payment of some sort under even a completely separated transaction from party B to party C, there was still a risk that the deduction disallowance rules would apply. Did I remember that right? You remember perfectly well, this is the structural arrangement where your related party in Mexico is making a payment and ends up in the hand of an only related party subject to a preferential tax regime. What happened in the middle can be payments that go outside of the group, inside of the group, etc., etc. But at the end, part of this payment is finishing in the hands of a, a related party, a foreign related party subject to a preferential tax regime, regardless that it is not a conduit situation, etc. Yes. This is the definition of a structural arrangement, and this is something that we have to face as well. Which sounds like putting together the things that the three of you have been saying, that taxpayers between now and the end of the year would be best advised to get their org charts out, map out their various financial arrangements, not only to and from Mexican entities, but in the group as a whole to see what may be treated as originating in Mexico that could potentially be caught within the scope of one of these rules, because there are a lot of rules. You have a collection of measures in the Mexican legislation, which we have to face and try to move the hurdles in order to get <laughs> to get the goal and see that we have a deductible payment. Can we move then to the changes in the thin cap rules? What's the current state of the thin cap rules that is changing? Well, it's interesting, Kim. When you are calculating the thin cap rule, you can have an option of using the capital account balance, mm -hmm. or you can use the tax attributes that you may have. You remember that we have two main tax attributes. One is the capital contribution account that usually is represented by all the contributions made by the shareholders. That's in general terms, the capital contribution account. The mm -hmm. other one is the net tax profit account that in simple terms represents all the taxable profits that already pay taxes. So when you combine both, you can have like a hypothetical capital account balance in order to use it for your think up ratio three to one. Mm -hmm. The tax authorities, during the arguments of this tax bill, is saying that a lot of taxpayers were using the tax attributes to take advantage of the ratio and have better chances to deduct more interest. So the tax reform, in order to reduce that advantage that they were observing, they are obliged to reduce these tax attributes with the tax losses that you may have. In case that even by reducing these tax attributes with a tax loss, the aggregate amount of these three components is higher than 20% of the financial capital account balance that should be used for the think-up ratio, then you have to explain why otherwise you will not be able to use these tax attributes. So that's the main change on the think-up. 
so I think there is a question then, right? Has the company done previous planning or otherwise that will impact the thin cap rules on a go forward? Is that fair? Yeah, of course. You have an action point here about how you were computing these thin cap rules. If you were using the tax attributes, you still have the chance to do it for 2021. This is effective of 2022. So you still have the chance to use this option. Of course, there's some limitations and restrictions because you cannot just change from one year to the next one, but you have to think about it. And that's one thing. The other thing to bear in mind when we're structuring some debt into the Mexican entities is this exemption in the specific sectors, like Juan was mentioning about the energy sector, the infrastructure sector, all the so-called strategic activities for the country that will be exempted. We were considering, based on different interpretations, that the FinCAP exemption will apply with all the entities that are involved in this kind of activities. But now the tax authorities are clarifying that this is only applicable to the owner of the concession, for instance, only the one that has direct contract and the benefits of the infrastructure or energy activities will be the one that will be subject to it. So, for instance, we have seen like having a holding company in Mexico and a lot of SPVs that are really the ones that were awarded with the contract that were also applying this exemption. You will not be able to apply, even if you are the holding of the SPVs that have the contracts that were awarded, only the SPVs. Okay. Juan David, there were a few of the provisions, I recall, that touched on mergers and maybe spinoffs. Absolutely, Kim. And actually, this goes in the same line as in the case of the back-to-back loans. It seems that the tax authorities are moving forward in the terms of, of this concept of business reason. The bill is including like, the same concept of business reason behind mergers and spin-offs. So basically, tax authorities will have the powers to say, hey, this merger or spin-off does not have a, a valid business reason. It did not comply with the requirements for the merger to be considered as an exempt alienation, and therefore you will have to pay all those taxes that will arise by means of the transfer that is being carried on as part of the merger and the spin-off. The tax authorities were trying also to put certain relevant transactions in order to determine if there's business reasons or not during the merge process. For instance, if we are transferring the right to use the assets or the shares of the companies that were subject to this merge or spin-off process, some of them are related to the increase or decrease on the value of the shares in the restructuring. Some of them are related if we are doing a capital redemption or a liquidation. And this is something that might happen five years before of the merge or five years later after the merge. And then all these relevant transactions might, and that's important, may take into consideration by the tax authorities to determine if there was a lack of business reasons. There are others, like a migration of the shareholders in this restructuring, or if we are transferring part of the business as a consequence of it. And this will be informed as a relevant transaction by the company that was involved in the restructuring process. So this is something very aggressive from the tax authority. This is a huge amendment to the law and we should follow up very carefully how this evolves in the future. Armando, it sounds like we have more change happening in the Maquila space. 
we had a safe harbor where our profits are six and a half percent of our expenses and costs or six and a half percent of a return on our assets. And then we went into the APA situation where maybe taxpayers could get a better answer. It sounds like that's off the table now. That's correct. One of the points that the tax reform is proposing is to eliminate the possibility to apply for the APA starting on January 1st, 2022. There has been created a lot of confusion. This figure, 6.5, 6.9, were agreed in a mutual agreement procedure that was signed in 1999 with the IRS. Something that is very important to keep in mind. To the extent that we apply the safe harbor rule, we will be outside of the scope to create permanent establishment in Mexico. Seems to be that the tax authorities is saying, well, I at least have a certain tax collection in these figures. I don't want to reduce it by using an APA. And for that reason, this is something that I prefer to keep as a, the only way in order to preserve the tax regime for Maquila first. Second, you are not creating PE. What we need to do now is try to ask for an APA, request an APA up to year 2024 under the current legislation, and the deadline will be December 2021. Is there currently a backup, though? I thought there were a number of, of APAs kind of in process now as well. Yes. Yes, there is an amount of APAs in process, and this is something that we need to see how the, the, the tax authorities can deal with that, because actually there are a lot of uh, resolutions pending from the, these APAs. We are expecting that there has to be certain guidance from tax authorities in the case that this reform will be approved. The Maquiladora Industries put pressure on Congress saying that it's important to keep this APA program, as it is now, take into consideration that the economic reality probably does not reflect that the 6.5 and 6.9 is the proper numbers in which we can rely on in order to pay taxes in Mexico, because these measures were made in 1999. So the conditions of the maquiladoras have changed dramatically, and probably the amounts that now is on the table are not the correct ones. Probably they can be reduced for certain percentages, and this is something that is in discussion. That's why the APA was the solution in order to see if the safe harbor was correct or not. But the problem is that these 6.5, 6.9 are not agreed with other tax authorities. So the amount of tax to be paid is not in accordance to the tax treaty, etc. There, there can be potential problems in relation to double taxation because if they reject the amount that has to be paid in Mexico using this criteria, instead of to have APAs, you will have maps because they will start to do in order to say what will be the proper way in which I can attribute profits in relation to that. It will be a very tortuous way. We don't know exactly what will be the path the tax authorities want to follow in that regard. So you get PE protection if you price the Maquila services under one of the methodologies approved in law. And even if you get an APA that covers post-tax reform years, the tax reform would remove the APA from the list of approved methodologies. So maybe you don't get PE protection. Is that right? That's correct. Now, as the initiative it is, you won't have any protection of PE, and we are waiting to see what will be the outcome of the discussions at the level of the Congress, if there is any room for modifications in that part. That would be a disaster for a lot of my clients, particularly the capital-intensive ones that have been historically relying on an APA. It's super interesting now, too, as we see the rates changing. Right. I think a lot of the companies went the direction of the APA when we were in a very different rate environment. Right. And now as we're seeing potential for the U.S. rate going up again. And as you mentioned, the risk of a PE, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. 
can you describe the changes to the VAT rules and what effect they might have on taxpayers? Okay, so I think that in simple terms scheme is about trying to include in the possibility of credit the VAT that you paid to your vendors or suppliers, the non-taxable activities. In other words, as you may imagine, in order to credit all the VAT that you pay, that VAT should be linked to the taxable activities. With the bill, is proposed that if you have non-taxable events or events that are not considered as a sale or as a leasing or as an importation or as a service, or if you have a non-taxable event, in a good example could be the sale that occurred abroad, then the VAT that is connected to those activities non-taxable will be not creditable. And that's a big change because there's a lot of activities that are not necessarily fully identified with non-taxable activities. And the good example is the sale that is happening abroad where you use products, services, raw materials, everything is combined. So you are not identifying which proportion of the VAT that you paid correspond to these non-taxable activities. And then you have to determine like a specific proportion of non-taxable activities compared with all your activities to determine what part of the VAT that you pay to your vendors or suppliers are fully creditable. That's in general terms how this new rule might work. And if you think about it, could be, of course, very dangerous because we have other activities, not only the ones that occur abroad in terms of sale, but other activities that are not necessarily services or sale or leasing or importation. And then we may have an impact in our credit position for the VET. I have to say that there has been some specific uh, the court decisions in relation to that in the past. But in general terms, what we have seen is now definitely that they want to implement all of these criteria. And there will be uh, probably certain effects in the whole economy because the cases were very targeting. But now this is something that will be applying for everybody. For a bill that featured no explicit tax increases, tax reform really took a lot of big steps forward. Well, one of the Mexico's objectives in this tax reform is try to increase tax collection. And Mexico always has been the work in order to introduce several provisions that now are under the discussion in the international arena. We are always ahead in that, taking into consideration the needs for increasing tax collection. I agree, Armando. I think that we were trying Mexico to be the first in class in terms of the OCDE recommendations and perhaps introducing more aggressive actions. And it's interesting the combination that we have when we are dealing with a country that is still very formalistic. And that's something that will be evolving, I think. During 2020 tax reform, we saw the beginnings of anti-abuse provisions, MDR, deduction disallowance, and of course, the GAR. 2021 tax reform is sharpening the pencil on business purpose and conduit arrangements. So there's no increase of the headline corporate tax rate, but lots of developments that could spell significant increases of the effective tax rate people will have in Mexico. Chapter 3, whatever we have coming to implement BEPS 2.0, promises to be a doozy. We'll keep you posted. But in the meantime, be good, stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time. 